Tonight's message is going to be, it's going to be, it's going to be heavy. It's going to be heavy. And it's going to be, it's so interesting that Ashley brought up the word foundational, foundation, we need a foundation in her testimony. And, and I was thinking the same thing. We need to lay a good foundation, not just for this conference. Like we need a good foundation for this conference as we grow in our understanding of God and we grow in our relationship with God. But we need a foundation for our life for our life living as Christians. And I hope that we can lay a part of that foundation today, starting tonight. And so don't think of a foundation as like, like foundational math, like I'm learning how to count and how to add one plus one equals two. You know, think of like the foundation of a building, like it, this is heavy, this is made out of concrete and stone and bricks and, and metal and reroute, like this is heavy stuff. So a good foundation is heavy and it's deep. So tonight, we're gonna, it's going to be heavy, it's going to be deep. And some of you guys are probably going to hear me say things that might rock your world a little bit. It might be the first time you've ever heard some of these things that I'm saying to you are said in this way before. And I, I, I'm kind of a straight shooter. Like, I, I don't want to just tell you things just to make you feel good. I want to tell you things that I know are true, yes. that I know are from the Bible. Yes, and so I, I'm preaching the Bible tonight, and, and, and some of it is going to be hard to hear. But it's, it's, it's going to be good, and we're going to lay that foundation. And so, obviously you guys know that the topic is knowing God. That was a topic I was given, I think, three months ago, knowing God. And it's, it's a kind of, it was amazing because the, the, the doctrine of the knowledge of God is kind of, I kind of obsess over it. I like it. I like to study it. I like to learn about it. I like to read people, old dead guys that write about the knowledge of God. So it's going to be, it's going to be a topic that's really near and dear to my heart, but... As you can see, it's called Our Greatest Purpose, Knowing God. And so, you know, I, I do a lot of evangelism at the NDSU campus. And a question that I like to ask people is, what is a Christian? And it's a pretty basic question. And I usually ask it to the people that tell me that they're Christians or that they grew up in the church. So, okay, okay what is a Christian to you? Define it. Tell me. And I hear all, all sorts of answers that, that, that aren't right. There aren't, they're, they're not right. And, and so I want to ask that question tonight to start us off. What is a Christian? If I was to ask you, if we were one-on-one sitting over coffee, and I was to ask you to tell me what a Christian is, what, what would you say? So just think about it in your head for a moment. What is a Christian? And the definition that I'm about to give is, is going to be unique. It's going to be unique, and we're going, to, we're going to pick it apart a little bit. But I would say a Christian is someone who is living according to humanity's purpose for existence. A Christian is someone who is living according to humanity's purpose for existence. So that means that anybody who is not a Christian, who does not know God, is not living according to the reason to why they exist. And see, we all exist. Every single one of us. Every single person who's ever lived thousands of years ago. We all exist to know God. And if we just think about that for a moment, that's incredible. Like the God of the universe who spoke everything into existence, I'm made to know Him. I'm made to know Him. And, and this is objective. The Bible is very, very, very clear about this. This isn't an obje objective truth. This isn't subjective. This isn't like, well, 
for me, I think my purpose in life is to know God. And, you know, you over there, you can, you can think of whatever you want to think. You know, if you think that Buddhism or Hinduism or, or Islam or whatever it is, whatever religion you want to believe in, or maybe atheism or agnosticism, whatever it is, you can do that. That's, that's up to you. If that's your purpose, that's your purpose. Who am I to say that that can't be your purpose? But that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says, no, everybody's purpose is to know the one and true God, the God only revealed to us in the scriptures in the Bible. And so that's what I want to talk about tonight, this purpose, the purpose of knowing God. What does this mean? How do we know God? And here's the reality. We all know that we live in a sinful, cursed world. We know that. We know that we're sinful. Every single one of us, every single person who's lived is sinful. And so unfortunately, we'll know God either in, well, you could say it's fortunately or unfortunately, we'll know God in one of two ways, in judgment or in salvation. And that's it. If you are created to know God and you have willingly rejected him and gone your own way, you will either know him in judgment if you stay in that trajectory of rejecting him, because he will make himself known to you one day. And it will be judgment. He'll be your judge. Or you will know God as your Savior and salvation. And now is the time for salvation. Your time on earth, living now, is the only time for salvation. Man was appointed to live, to die once, and then comes judgment. And so how do I know this? Well, let's go to the scriptures to... Look at some text to ground us there. The first one I want to go to is Philippians 2, 9 through 11. It says this, and the Apostle Paul is writing to a church in Philippi. He says this, Therefore God has highly exalted him, and he's talking about Jesus Christ, and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So every knee, every person who's ever existed will bow their knee before Christ and confess with their tongue that he is Lord. Whether or not they, they, they accepted him in their life, whether or not they received him and repented of their sin and, and, and became a Christian, or whether they rejected him their whole life, they will bow their knee. The people who rejected him will bow their knee in judgment, though. So every person will stand before Christ one day, every single person. Revelation 20, 11 through 15. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it, death and Hades, gave up the dead who were in it, and they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. So every single person will stand before the throne, the white throne. And for those who have come to Christ in this lifetime, who are in Christ, those are the people whose names are written in the book of life. 
And those are the people that stand before God on that day rejoicing in joy because they're standing before their Father, their Savior, their King, their Creator. And it's in love and acceptance. But those whose names are not found written in the book of life because they have willingly rejected God and live not according to the purpose for their existence will be thrown into the eternal lake of fire forever to suffer the consequences. And that's what the Bible says. It's very clear on the reality of hell. Very, very, very clear. And that's heavy. That should be heavy. And it should motivate us to be people who talk about God and talk about the gospel. And so we're going to, really our main place of inquiry into the, into the Bible, those are just our introduction passages, actually. Uh, our, main, our main place of inquiry is going to be in the Old Testament. We're going to be in Genesis and in Exodus, the two, the two first books of the Bible. And, and the Old Testament was written in Hebrew, the language of Hebrew. And it's not the Hebrew that's spoken today. Uh, it's a dead language, and so it's only read. Um, and if you were to download the Duolingo app and, 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 you know, and start doing your Hebrew lessons on Duolingo, you wouldn't be able to read the Bible. It's a different Hebrew. And when we go back to the original language that the Bible was written in, and we look at the word, the Hebrew word that we translate into know, it's the word yada in Hebrew, and it literally means a knowledge that is more than just intellectual knowledge. So when we say, uh, well, the, the original side, knowing God, our purpose is knowing God, it, this doesn't just mean I know true things about God. This means that I have a relationship with Him. This word in Hebrew really means relational, it's intimate, it's personal. It's emotional. It has affections in it. And it's intellectual. And so we are created to know God in every way that you can know somebody. And it's the same word that's used when the Bible says Adam knew Eve or Abraham knew Sarah, which is it's a sexual term. It's the same word used when a husband and a wife are said to have sex in the Old Testament. It's that intimate. It's that personal. That is the knowledge that we are made for. We are made to know God that personally. That personally. And that's, again, that's incredible. That is absolutely incredible. And so, right now, because of sin, we live in a, in a period of time where that knowledge is, is, is messed up. It's, it's, it's masked. It's blocked. It's, it's just, there's something not quite right about it because of sin. And so if we want to see what we're really created for, what we're really created for, what, it, what life would really be like before sin, we have to go back to the time before sin, and that is in Genesis 1 and 2, when God created Adam and Eve, the first two people, before they fell, before they ate the tree from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, to see what was normal, what, was, what normal life was about. Because if we think right now is normal, then we would, we would have to say that God created sin. And he did it. God can't sin. He can't create sin. Sin is everything that's against God. God created the universe without sin. That's normal. This is abnormal. And it's abnormal because of what we did, what humanity did. 
So we want to go back to what's normal. What is it like to know God in the beginning? So we're not going to really dive into the text because it would take too long, but I'm just going to describe some things to you and just try to imagine with me what it would be like. So when God spoke Adam into existence, he said he created him from the dust of the earth. The moment Adam was given the breath of life and became a living being, he had instant knowledge of God. Instant knowledge of God. He didn't go through this period of of discovering who God is. No, he knew God instantly. Instantly. And everything around him, his environment, the trees of the garden, the shrubs of the garden, the water of the garden, the sky, the heavens, everything gave him information about God. See, everything around us is actually revelation. Revealing truth. Revealing knowledge. Everything around us. My body, your guys' bodies, the air, everything that's made is revelation. And it reveals knowledge to us. And so, before the fall, everything around Adam, even his own body, and even as he looked at his wife, everything was telling him something true about his creator. And we call that general revelation. God reveals true things about himself through the created world. But that there's also special revelation. God speaks propositionally with words and language true things about himself. And that gives us knowledge about God. And when we look at the, if you, you know, you could do it tonight, read Genesis 1 and 2, you see both. You see both. And God spoke a word to Adam. And he gave him a command. You shall not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The day you eat of it, you will die. And so there was these avenues of revelation, these avenues where knowledge was given to us. And so everything was interpreted to the glory of God. Everything. There's no such thing, thing as an atheist. There's no, there's no possibility for it. There's no possibility. There's no doubt. Nothing. Perfect knowledge. They knew God existed. It, it, it's, really, it's really unbelievable when you really think about it that way. So here's some, some texts that talk to us about in the Bible about general revelation and special revelation. The first one, Psalm 19, says this. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. So again, the created world gives us knowledge about God, but there's no speech. It's not propositional. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and the words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes up like a bridegroom, leaving his chamber, and like a strong man runs its course with joy. It's rising us from the end of the heavens and it's circuit to the end of them and there's nothing hidden from its heat. Another passage is Romans 1.20. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made so they are without excuse. So God's attributes, his characteristics, especially his eternal power and divine nature, has been clearly perceived by humanity since the creation of the world. So Adam and Eve were created automatically seeing this, knowing this, knowing God's eternal power and divine nature. It was clear, and they were without excuse. And we are without excuse today as well, which is, again, unbelievable. 
through the Word. So again, like I said, through creation, general revelation. Through the Word, special revelation. Hebrews 1. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. He spoke. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things. Through Him also He created the world. And then 2 Timothy 3, 14 through 17. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from what you learned it, from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So those are, those are the two avenues. Those are the two avenues. General special revelation. And they're the same today. They're the same today. They were in the garden before sin. They're the same today. And so what Adam and Eve were able to know about God, is one, they knew that he was holy. God is a holy God, which means he's totally different from the created world. He is not his creation. He's something totally separate, totally different from his creation. Because he created the world. He's holy, unique, different. They also knew that, obviously, he was the creator. Which means that their life, their being, everything about them is dependent on him. And that also means that the fact that they are even still alive is because he sustains them. And so it's true for us today. The reason why you're still alive in this moment is because God is sustaining you with his power. He is your creator. He is your creator. And we think about when we create things, if we create artwork or if we create a pot from clay or whatever we do, we build something. You know, we tend to think, you know, if I, if I built this, I built this pot, it's mine. It's my pot. And I can do what I want with it. And, and so... It's even deeper than that. Because I went and bought some material. I went and bought the clay somewhere. I got the clay from someone or whatever, and I built this pot. But I still think it's mine. God spoke our being into existence from nothing. What we're made of, our soul and our physical body, was created by God from nothing. Which means that Adam and Eve also knew that God was Lord. Lord, and that means that he has authority over our life, he has control over our life, and his presence dwells with us. So if somebody is a Lord of a region or a country or whatever, their presence dwells there. And they have authority there and they have control. So God has authority over our lives, he has control over our lives, he has authority over this universe, he has control over this universe, and his presence dwells in here, in this universe in his creation, but it also dwells outside of it. So God is outside of the universe, yet inside of the universe, working, active, in control, and has authority. And Adam and Eve knew this automatically. And it was perfect, and they loved it, and they rejoiced in it, and they worshiped God, and they glorified God, and it was good, and they were living exactly as they were designed to live. And when you live exactly as you're designed to live, it creates, it causes human flourishing. If I design a pot to drink out of, out of clay, and then I decide that, no, maybe I'm going to use this pot as a hammer now and beat this nail in with it, it's going to break. Because the design was to be 
used for drinking water. But if I design a hammer made out of metal and I beat this hammer and it works, because that's what it's designed for. So Adam and Eve were living according to their design before sin, and it was good, and it caused human flourishing, and it caused joy and rejoicing and worship of their creator, God. And we, it's, it's true for us today. It's true for us today. That's why sin mars us so much. That's why sin is so heavy on us, because we're not created for it. We're not created for it. We're not designed for it. The body says that, or the Bible says that the body is made for the Lord and the Lord for the body. So sin, we're not made for it. We're not designed for it. So what happened? What happened then? I mean, obviously, it's not the case today. Not everybody is born into this world who's automatically knowing God. Nobody is actually. Every single person is now born automatically separated from God. And even more so, we're all born willingly rejecting Him and hating Him. The Bible says that we're enemies of God, that we're opposed to Him, that we do not submit to Him, that we do not seek Him, that we hate Him. The person that made us, the, the being that made us, God, we hate Him. We're born into this world hating Him. And that's because Adam and Eve ate of the tree that they were not supposed to eat from. And God said, the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. So the consequences of sin is death. Death. And so God was gracious. He didn't kill them in the moment, though He could have. He put them outside of the garden, which is saying, I'm going to put you outside of my presence. You're no longer going to dwell with me. So there's going to be a separation now between me and you. And sin made that separation. You made that separation. I did it. So now we're born into this world willingly going against God because of our sinful nature that we inherit from Adam and Eve. But the interesting thing is, is that the information, this knowledge, hasn't changed. It's not as though... The, the creator world isn't giving me information about God. It's that I, in my sinful flesh now, interpret this information to my glory. And so before sin, we, Adam and Eve, interpreted, interpreted everything to the glory of God. Now, we interpret it to the glory of man. We become self-worshippers. We become our own gods. We all are born into this world doing this. That's why we have such things as atheists and agnostics and all these different religions, because we, we just do what we want to do. And we decide which, what my purpose is going to be for life, and this is what it's going to be, and you can't tell me that I can't do this. Because we interpret everything to our own gain, to our own glory. And that is the root of sin. Sin isn't just outward things, murder, you know, those outward things, those action things that we understand. Sin is, is just, it's, it's the deepest nature of our heart. It's desiring anything other than God. It's treasuring anything more than God. It's, it's building your life on anything but God. That's sin. And out of that, obviously comes these wicked actions that we do, that we've all done. That's sin. And sin has a consequence in its death. 
And that's reiterated in Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death. And death isn't just a physical death, it is a spiritual death. It means a spiritual separation from God for eternity. And that's what we read about in those first two passages, especially Revelation 20. That second passage that, that we looked at, and the people whose names were not found written in the book of life, because they willingly rejected God, they were thrown into the eternal lake of fire, which is an eternal separation for God, from God. That is the consequence. That is the punishment. And we all deserve it. I deserve hell. I deserve it. More than anybody. And because sin is in the world, again, remember, remember what I said. We will either know God in judgment or in salvation. And by God's grace, some of us are restored back to that perfect knowledge, that knowledge that was in the garden before Adam and Eve sinned. But we're restored back to that because God is not done. It's not like, oh, they sinned, done. End of the story. No, there's redemption. There's a plan that's even more fantastic, fantastic than we could ever imagine. More fantastic than we could ever imagine. And so to, to, to start to wrap up tonight, we're going to look at, I told you that we're going to look at some Exodus passages. So Exodus is the second book in the Old Testament. And, and are you guys familiar with Noah, or I mean not Noah, but Moses parting the Red Sea, like that story? We, we've heard of that story before, obviously. I mean, pretty big, big deal stuff, parting, parting the Red Sea and walking on dry ground. And so the, the background to that story is that the nation of Israel, which was God's chosen people, the people that he chose to redeem, to save, so that he can live with them and dwell with them and have them know him, they lived in slavery in Egypt for 400 years under the oppression of the Egyptians. And the Egyptians were wicked, and they were horrible to the Israelites and to the Hebrews. And God decided that enough is enough, I'm going to save you out of the oppression of the Egyptians. And so he used a man named Moses to lead this, this exodus out of Egypt into the promised land. But God doesn't just want to make himself known to the Israelites. He also wants to make himself known to the Egyptians. And so we see a very interesting thing in Exodus. We see God make himself known to the Egyptians in judgment, and he makes himself known to the Israelites in salvation. So we see this play out in Exodus. So the first passage that I want to read is Exodus 5, verses 1 through 2. And this is when Moses and his brother Aaron go to Pharaoh to tell him what the Lord wants to do. The Lord wants you to let your, his people go. And this is what Pharaoh says. He says, after Moses and Aaron went, to, went and said to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, let my people go that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh said, who is the Lord? that I should obey his voice and let Israel go. I do not know the Lord, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. Another passage, Exodus 6, 6 through 8. This is God speaking to Israel now. Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you, deliver you from, the slavery, from slavery to them. And I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to my people 
take you to be my people, and I will be your God. And you shall know that I am the Lord your God, who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you as a possession. I am the Lord. So here we see it. He's going to... Pharaoh says, I don't know the Lord, and I'm not going to obey the Lord, because I don't know him. And we have one more passage that we're going to read, Exodus 7, 4 through 5. And he says, Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my hosts, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. So here we have it. Pharaoh says, I don't know the Lord, and I'm not going to let your people go. Who am I to obey him? Or who is he that I should obey him? And God says, well, you will know me. You will know me. I created you to know me. But because you've rejected me, you will know me in judgment. And so I'm going to do these series of judgments on Egypt until you let my people go. And those are the ten plagues that hit Egypt. Have you guys heard of the ten plagues before? That's this. I'm not going to list them all. Some of them, oh, the first one was making the Nile turn into blood. Then there's flies and frogs and hail and all this stuff. But the last plague, the last plague was the worst. And nine times these horrible things happened to the Egyptians. And Pharaoh still didn't let his, God's people go. And so God did one last thing, the tenth plague. And it's the death of the firstborn. The death of the firstborn. So he says, I will take the firstborn out of every family in Egypt, even the livestock, even the animals. And then he tells the Israelites, I will not spare your firstborn either unless you do something. Unless you take a lamb without blemish and you sacrifice it to the Lord. You take the blood of the lamb and you put it on your doorposts, on your doorframe with a piece, a branch of hyssop. And when the angel, the destroyer, the angel of death comes through Egypt to kill the firstborn and he comes to your house to kill your firstborn, if he sees the blood of the lamb over your doorframe, he will pass over your house and you will not face the judgment. And those who do not have the blood of the Lamb over the doorpost will face the judgment of God as they deserve. And all the Israelites did it. They obeyed. And they put the blood of the Lamb over the doorpost. And the angel of death came through and he passed over every single Israelite house. God saved his people. Because actually, the Israelites deserved a judgment too. They had sin as well. But God decided to save Israel. And they experienced salvation. And God brought them out of Egypt into the promised land that he promised to give them. And so the question tonight, this is it, this is it. If you've been tuned out for this whole talk, pay attention now. Pay attention now. Here it is. Again, you will know God in one of two ways, judgment or salvation. And here it is. Is the blood of the Lamb covering you? That is the question. Who's the blood? What, what, who's this lamb? What's this blood? 
This is a, in Exodus, this is a foreshadow of the true Savior to come, Jesus Christ. And His blood was shed for you to save you so that judgment would not come to you, though you deserve it. God, the God that created the universe, this God that we've been talking about, He's a triune God. He's one God revealed in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Three persons, one God. Don't try to understand it, you won't. But, the second person of that God had Jesus Christ, who is the eternally existing God, the God that created Adam and Eve, the God that created us, that God, Jesus Christ, the second person, came down in the form of a man 2,000 years ago, that lamb, without blemish. He lived a perfect life without sin. Never sinned in any way. Never sinned in intention, in desire, in will. No sin. Perfect. And then he willingly went to the cross on Calvary. A, a, a device that was perfected by the Romans to kill somebody in the most excruciating way possible. They say that there's no greater death, no greater pain than a Roman crucifixion. It was perfected by them. And our God, our Creator, went willingly to that cross. And there's something that, that was very significant that was taking place there. And so we misunderstand this a lot. We just think Jesus went there just to uh, symbolize or show His love for us by dying for us. And certainly, he was expressing his deep love for us by dying for us, but there's something even more significant happening in the spiritual realm. And so we know that the wages of sin is death, so to pay for sin, there needs to be death. There needs to be death. And we know that God is just and holy and righteous. So for him to leave any sin, even one sin, even your measly little lie that you said to your parents when you were six, for him to even leave one sin unpunished is unjust of him. And he would no longer be a righteous God. So he must punish every sin. So how the heck can we be saved then? Read what 1 Peter 2.24 says. I don't have it on slides, but just, just listen to what Peter is saying. He says, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. So what God did, what Jesus did, is he took the sins of all those who would believe on, on him. He took their sins, my sins. 2,000 years ago, he took my sins that he knew I would commit. And he took them in his body. And then God the Father in heaven poured out his righteous holy wrath on Jesus. God punished God. God killed God. That is a crazy concept, but it's true. Jesus was God. He died in our place. He took our sins in his body, and they were punished on him, and he died. And he died. Sin is punished. God remains just. And then Jesus was resurrected three days later, later proving that what he did worked, and that the power of the grave could not hold him. He overcame it. And then now, today, 2,000 years after this happened, we hear this message that Jesus 
lived the perfect life, that he is God, that he willingly went to the cross to die for us, that he took our sins in our place as our substitute and paid the penalty for him. We hear this message of the gospel, the good news that Jesus would do this for us. And if we repent of our sins and turn to Christ in faith and believe in him, he is faithful and just to forgive us because the sin has been punished. But not only that, he then gives us through faith Jesus' righteous record. So remember, Jesus lived a perfect life before he died. And we are given that perfect life through faith. You can think of faith as a channel, as an avenue, and through it, we are given righteousness. So, God punishes sin, God gives us a righteousness, though we are wicked and guilty. That's unbelievable. That's the gospel. That's the blood of the Lamb that blankets you, that covers you, so that we will not be judged. And so if you have not turned to Christ, repented of your sin, and turned to Christ in faith, then salvation is, is now. Do it now. And what, what, what is faith? We, we throw this word faith out all the time. What does faith mean? What do you mean turn to Christ in faith? What does that mean? Is that like a blind leap? Is, am I just supposed to be stupid and just blindly go that way? No. Just like I said that the word knowledge means it encompasses every aspect of you, your, your, your emotions, your intellect, and your will. It's, it's everything. So faith is everything. It's your intellect, it's your emotions, and it's your will. So true faith is a faith that believes in the true things about God, believes in the Bible, believes intellectually. True faith is also a faith that feels through feelings, that has true affections for Christ. I actually feel a love for Jesus. I actually desire him. I actually want him. And then true faith is a faith that turns from your old life of sin to Christ in obedience and obeys the scriptures and obeys what God has told us to do because his commandments are good for us and they're according to how he has designed us. That is true faith. That is a faith that saves. And if you have not turned to Christ in faith, then you can do it in a moment now. You can do it in a moment now. And then what happens? Well, I'm going to read Ephesians 1.14 to wrap us up. Paul is saying this, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, the message I just shared, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. So, when you come to faith, you are given the Holy Spirit, who is the third person of the Godhead, the Trinity. So God then dwells within you, as he always desired to do, as he always willed it to be. God created humanity to dwell with them, and so then God dwells within you with his Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity. And you are sealed for a time to come, or we will be glorified made right.